Uh, So today is Christmas at First Century, and we're going to finish up sort of this three-week series we've done uh, so far. And what we've done in this three-week series is look at how Christmas can mean so much more than we maybe think it does on the surface. We've looked at how Christmas can, can give us more, make more available to us in so many areas of our life in so many ways. And today we're going to talk about that as well to finish this up this morning. Uh, and this series has been, as I mentioned, it's been a little deeper than we normally would go. And today's going to be no different. I kind of described to someone earlier, today's sermon is sort of like a slow burn movie. So you're, you're kind of in it, but you're like, where is this going? There's so many loose ends here. How is this all going to come together at the end? But I promise you, if I do this right, it will come together in the end. All of the loose ends will be tied in a nice, neat Christmas bow, and we'll hopefully leave thinking, okay, I get where he was trying to go with that. So it is going to be a little bit deep. We are going uh, to go there today, but it's going to be great. We're going to hopefully build to sort of an amazing discovery this Christmas. So what we're going to talk about, really, the first sort of topic, the main topic, is love. Love is unique. It's one of the most unique and important human expressions that we have as a species. And there's been a lot of talk, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about the topic of love. You know, one of the main questions is, what is love? Yeah. Exactly. And then there's another great question about love, and that's, What's love got to do with it? And that's a key question. It's, it's more than a secondhand emotion. I'll just tell you right off the bat, it is. We'll talk about that today. If you're a fan of Frozen, you would know that love is an open door. If you ask Pat Benatar, she would say love is a battlefield. Uh, and the Beatles, what do they say? Love is all you need. All you need is love. I think, however, the best way to describe love is in this way. Love is a many-splendored thing. That's the most accurate one because love can be complicated, can it? Like, love is an amazing experience, an amazing emotion, but it can be very frustrating at times. Uh, Love can be something that is so wonderful and joyful and yet sometimes can cause a lot of stress. Uh, and lo- so love is more than, it is more than just a secondhand emotion. It's more than an emotion itself. It's not just a mental thing. It's not just an emotional thing. Love is actually physiological. So the last 20, 30 years or so, there have been more studies done on the topic of love than really all of science before that combined. It's been a topic, for some reason, people are interested, how does the human body react to this emotion of love or the feeling of love? So a few things that are interesting about romantic love actually increases dopamine in your brain, which is a feel-good transmitter. So literally, love is like a drug. Romantic love releases the same chemical in your brain as most uppers do. So romantic love does that. Here's an interesting thing. I'd never thought about this, but it makes sense. Uh, Initial romantic love actually also increases cortisol in your body. Usually, that is brought on by stress. So that's a big thing of weight gain, okay? It's cortisol releasing in your body through stress. The same, that's a, initial romantic love. That's also released into your system. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When you first meet someone, you have the butterflies. You have nerves. It's weird. It's awkward. It's what you might call positive anxiety at times. 
And then you sometimes will daydream. You sometimes will be preoccupied by thinking about that person all the time. That's that thing working in your body. This sort of feeling has that effect on us. But it's not just that. Another type of love is compassionate love. It also has an interesting effect physiologically. Um, A Harvard Medical School study showed this. Compassionate love actually deactivates the neural pathway responsible for negative emotions like fear and social judgment. So I'll say that again. This Harvard Medical School study showed that compassionate love deactivates the neural pathway in your brain that's responsible for negative emotions like fear and social judgment. So what that means is when you truly care for someone deeply and compassionately, you're not afraid to express that or share that. You're, you're not, you don't judge them like when they have maybe a social type of need. You don't look down on them because you truly have empathy for them. And that affects the way that you think, the way that you think about that person and their situation. You don't judge them for where they are in life. But instead, that your, your brain overrides that emotion or those feelings to really show compassionate love to that person. Even from birth, we've known many studies that show this, even from birth for infants, for newborns, Uh, Love and physical touch from the mother specifically has positive effects on the baby. So we know that uh, contact between a baby and a mother within the first hour after birth helps to regulate the baby's temperature, heart rate, and breathing patterns. That's all it is. Just the physical touch between baby and mom has that sort of calming effect on a newborn baby. And we know that within the first six months of life, Increased physical touch uh, for a toddler, for, I don't know, they're not a toddler, they're not a newborn. Infant, thank you, there's a term, I don't know. I have kids, I just don't know anything about them, all right. Um, In the first six months, increased physical touch actually can accelerate growth and development in that child. And the inverse can also be true. A lack of love and physical touch in an infant, is that the right term, did I say it right? can actually stunt the growth and development of that child. Now, it's not 100% foolproof, but the, the studies are overwhelming in that analysis. So love is important, and it can be complicated, but it's, a, it's the most unique uh, physical or human expression that we have. So now the second sort of topic that is not it, it connected quite yet, we're going to switch gears here for a second, is totally different, and that's this idea of something called the Trinity, I told you this is very disconnected right now. It's a slow burn, okay? So the Trinity is this idea. Maybe you've heard of it before. If you haven't, this is going to be a great quick reminder or sort of lesson on what that is. And if you are familiar with this idea, just hang with me through this, you know, three-minute lesson on stuff you already know because it will be important in just a minute, all right? So the Trinity is this idea that the, the theological belief that God is one God who exists in three persons, Okay, one God, three persons. I'm going to give you a few scriptures to show how that works itself out, how it looks. Right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. See the plural language there? Why does God talk like that? Who is God talking to? I'll tell you who he's talking to. He's talking to himself. You ever talk to yourself before? 
you know, hey, self, it's time to get up out of bed today. It's 12.30 in the afternoon. You know, that's maybe the kind of talk that you have with yourself sometimes. Or maybe it's, you know, 6 a.m. I should have been up an hour ago. Self, it's time to get up. You know, you talk to yourself. Well, God does that in Genesis 1.26, but it's in a very unique way because he is, again, one God in three distinct persons. And then we get down to the, the, really the story of Jesus, the introduction of Jesus. And we, we talked about a couple of these verses last week and the week before. But this recap is going to build this sort of where we're going. So again, let's look at this one more time. John chapter 1, verse 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Then he goes on to explain, when he's talking about the word, that's Jesus Christ. So John is building his case that Jesus is God. He's saying Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is divine. He is eternal. He was at the beginning not only with God, but he was God. He is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. He was there at, in Genesis in that beginning. Yeah, it's the same beginning that John's talking about. So he was God. He is God at and from the beginning. And then we see this again when the angel announces to Mary and Joseph, specifically Joseph here, about the birth of Jesus. Uh, he, the, the angel lets, lets us in, and then Matthew also, as we looked at last week, lets us in on a very key point about who Jesus is and who he's going to be. So this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is the angel telling Joseph, hey, Mary's about to, is going to be pregnant, and here's what's going to happen. The angel says to Joseph, she will give birth to a son... You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, Matthew is telling us from the very beginning, even before Jesus is born, he's letting us in on this key point about Jesus. This is not just a normal baby. This is not a normal birth. This will not be a normal person. He is God in flesh. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus eternal, is eternal from heaven to earth. He is still fully God in flesh. He is part of the Trinity. So we talked about love and the Trinity. Now we're going to combine these two ideas, and I hope that you can see what, what I hope is not going to be an insignificant point that I'm trying to make this morning about this issue of love being the key idea. I hope that we can see uh, what, how great God's love is, how wonderful it really is, probably deeper than maybe we even realize is what I'm hoping we're going to discover today. So let's combine these two ideas. And I have this quote from this book I've, that kind of this idea for this whole Christmas uh, theme came from this year. The book's called The Incarnation of God. So I'm going to read this quote, and we're going to try to look at it, break it down just for a minute here. So here's what, here, here's what I want to share this morning. It says this, Our one God has eternally been and will eternally be a mutually indwelling and interpenetrating communion of persons, that's the Trinity, who exist, here's the key, in self-giving and, and life-giving love. Love is who God is. So let me, let me read that again, and he, this is going to be our jumping off point to the real key of what we're going to get at today. Our one God, so God is one, 
but he exists in three persons. That's what this whole thing is saying. He has eternally been and will eternally be a mutually indwelling and interpenetrating communion of persons. So they're intertwined together. We can't separate them because that wouldn't be God anymore. We can't separate them because then that would be three gods or it would be an incomplete version of who God is trying to reveal himself to be. They have to be together. It has to be three in one, okay? So these persons exist in self-giving and life-giving love. Love is who God is. And John, in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, he, he says this, God is love. Now we think about God loves, well, he certainly does, but at the essence of who he is, is love. That love is who God is. It's not an expression of what he does, it's an explanation of who he is, okay? So here, here let me just say it this way, God fully completely and perfectly expresses love within himself through the Trinity. God fully, completely, and perfectly expresses love within himself through the Trinity. This is what we're going to call divine love. Divine love is a love that we, not being God, cannot, we have no way to uh, express this. We have no way to even really receive this on the merits of us being created by God. This is a love that's above our level, okay? So here's why we're talking about the Trinity and love together, okay? Since Jesus is part of the Trinity, okay? He is the Son. He is the second person of the Godhead. Since Jesus is a person of the Trinity, it means that Jesus experiences God's love in a way that we could never begin to understand. It's kind of like the phrase, you, had, you just had to be there. You ever heard that before, used that phrase before? You just had to be there. You try to explain a story to someone. It was so funny what happened. You explain, they just don't get it. Like, I, that's not funny at all. You, oh, you just had to be there. That, the kind of love that Jesus has eternally experienced from the Father and the Holy Spirit is like that to us. We can't understand it. We can't wrap our minds around it. And we definitely can't enter into it. It's, not, it's above who we are. But here is the wonderful news about Christmas. The wonderful thing about Christmas is that Jesus' birth allows him to explain God's love in a way that we can understand. So again, Jesus experiences God's love in a way that we could never understand. But because he came to earth to be like one of us, he can then explain that love to us in a way that we can understand. And the key way that he does that is by this father-son relationship that he has with God. Because we can relate to that. Like, I can't relate to being an eternal being who is three in one and who expresses love within myself. I don't understand that. I can't fathom that. I can't relate to that. But when someone tells me about a father and a son loving each other, I can, I can grip with that. Like, I can deal with that. And so that's what Jesus does. He expresses this love that we could never understand in terms that we can by talking about father and son. And it kind, of, it kind of starts small and then like a ripple effect and then expands. So I want to go through that just for a couple minutes and show you the progression of how this relationship is expressed, okay? So the first time that we see this relationship, it just sort of happens, okay? It just sort of happens. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, very famous time in the life of Jesus. Luke writes this, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So the voice is the Father, Jesus is the Son. So this is the first time on this planet that we see all three persons of the Trinity 
at once, working together in the same moment. It's a very unique time in history. So we see this for the first time. This relationship just sort of expresses itself. So Jesus comes, and he's, he, said, he is the son because the father says so, okay? But then Jesus sort of has to explain what that is, and so he does that over and over. What's interesting, though, is that when you try to look up times where Jesus overtly says, I am God's son, you're not going to find it very often. When he explains it, he explains it in sort of, sort of a muted type of way at best, sort of a way in which if you're really in tune with what he's teaching, what he's saying, what he's doing, it's going to finally click with you. But he doesn't just come out, very, very rarely is he going to say this, that we have recorded. However, John, later on in chapter 5, verse 18, says this, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him, that's Jesus, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So even though we don't have a lot of recorded stuff written down, Jesus says, hey, I'm the son of God, I'm the son of God. He obviously said it enough, clearly enough, that it was kind of the main thing he was killed for, blasphemy. So he was equating himself with God. He's saying, hey, and he says this to his disciples in John 15, I and the Father, we're one, we're the same. But he's using it in terms we can understand, a father-son relationship, a loving relationship. So he says it so often, so many times, that eventually others kind of catch on to this relationship. They eventually grab a hold of this type of language. Because later in Matthew 16, again, a lot of scripture today, but we're building this case to make a very important point here in just a second. Matthew 16, verse 15, he has this conversation with his disciples. And he's asking them these questions. He's saying, hey, there's been a lot said about me. People have said, well, I'm, I, I'm this. They describe me as that. And so he says, well, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Moses. Some say that you're this or that or a prophet or whatever. And so then he asks this question to them. He says, okay, guys, but listen, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Let's go back to that first slide of this verse for just a second. There's two terms here that are important, but they are not the same. Messiah and Son of God are not the same idea. They are not the same term. Messiah is a very specific term. Son of God is a different and very specific term. And Jesus is claiming both of these. Peter says you are both of these. So Messiah is, I, I am the promised one who has come to rescue Israel. I, I'm the one that the prophets have talked about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to come and rescue God's people and bring them into a new era of greatness and glory and worship of God and devotion to him. So Jesus says, I'm that guy, and I also happen to be the son of God. So we, we, this is interesting because the Messiah, that was never part of it. The Son of God thing was like a bonus. <laughs> it was like an extra. It was kind of the thing that really threw people off. I have a feeling that if Jesus had done the things he did and said the things he did, minus the I'm God thing, there's a chance that he would have been believed more so than he was. Because that was the stumbling block. Again, we talked about it. They tried to arrest him all the more, not because he said he was the Messiah, but because he said he was the Son of God. 
That was the thing that people could not get their heads around. They couldn't wrap their minds around that. Well, no, nobody can do that. Nobody can claim that. And yet he did because he was. So Peter recognizes both of these in Jesus. You are the promised one, and you are the one who really made the promise. You fit both of those descriptions. And Jesus says, you got it. You figured it out. Tell him what he's won, Johnny. Ding, 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 ding. So he finally got it. I don't know what he won. I guess he you know, got to be the first pope or whatever, but that was his prize. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of a joke, but not. So anyway, um, see, I told you, Matt. I told you. That's what I do. That was not a prepared joke and shouldn't have said it. All right, so anyway, so Jesus is both of these. He is the Savior of God's people, and he happens to be God at the same time. Pretty cool. So he's part of that trinity. I I found this fascinating, too. Uh, I'm just going to read this really quickly. Luke chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. Even evil spirits know that Jesus is God. Okay? So Luke 4, 40. As the sun went down that evening, people brought throughout the village— throughout the village, brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed every one. Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command shouting, you are the son of God. So these fallen, evil, wicked beings understood what the people that Jesus came for could not or would not. That's a pretty fascinating thing to consider. They don't believe in him to have, like, salvation to them, right? But they know who he is. They know who they're dealing with. They know who they're messing with. And yet, majority, by and large, even to this day, the people that he came for initially don't buy it, don't believe it, won't put their faith in that. Pretty interesting sort of thing. So where are we going with all this? It's probably what you're thinking. And I can understand that. I'll tell you, I wrestled with this sermon a lot this week because I was like, I'm going to probably kick myself for a while for this one, but we're going to go for it. We're already too far over anyway, so we just might as well finish it off, right? Here we go. So here's the real power behind all of this. Again, Jesus experienced from eternity past a love we could never understand, and yet he spent most of his time on earth trying to explain it to us in a way that we can't understand. That's cool. He's trying to explain how great God's love is, how wonderful God's love is, how powerful God's love is, how unique God's love is. So he does that. But Jesus did not just reveal or explain or express divine love, but he also then allows us to share in it. Which again, as we already established, is something that we cannot do. I am not an eternal divine being. I am not a member of the Trinity. Therefore, I cannot enter into divine love. But Jesus makes a way for us to do the impossible. He makes a way for us to enter into this love that we cannot enter into. So there's a a quote from this same book. It's from this um, theologian named T.F. Torrance. He says this. He says, The gospel does not simply rest on the fact that God loves us, but on the fact that he loves us with the very same love which he is in, in his triune being. The gospel does not simply does not rest simply on the fact that God loves us, but on the fact that he loves us with the very same love which he is in in his triune being. So Jesus says, hey, this divine love that you have no access to at all, there's no way you can enter into this. I'm making a way for you to enter into divine love. That's the good news about Jesus. And that's really when he talks about father, my father, my father, 
he goes one step further in a very key point that he's trying to make. So when his followers are saying, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray, how does he start that prayer? Our Father. Not, oh, Father. Not, my Father. He includes us through that prayer in this divine love. Our Father. So it's not just that he's explaining this impossible to explain love, but he is extending it to us. Because really before this, divine love is in a closed circle. Only the Trinity can fit in that circle of love. So again, what Jesus is doing here is he is allowing us to enter into this closed circle. So it's expressed this way, John 14, 23. Jesus says this, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. He's extending this divine love to people who cannot enter into it by themselves on their own. There is no way we can do that, but he makes that there. So again, this love is sort of, in, think of it in these terms. This kind of love that we're talking about is a closed circle. It's like an exclusive members-only club. And, if, and, and there's like, you know, a, a really big bouncer with a velvet rope at the entrance. And he lets no one in. If you're not the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, you're not getting past me. You're not getting in there. It's that exclusive. And so then it's, and it's, you have to ha know the secret handshake and know the secret password, that kind of thing. And nobody besides the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know the password, know the handshake. It's that exclusive. Yet what Jesus does is that as we put our faith in him, we get admittance into this exclusive club. Now, I say exclusive because it's like three people and millions of us have gotten in, billions of us have gotten in over the millennia. And we say, when you think exclusive, you think, well, you've got to have this or know that or get an invitation. So it is exclusive, but it's inclusive because everyone's invited. Everyone has the invitation to involve themselves in this exclusive love, this divine love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We're all invited to this club. It's a matter of putting our faith in the one that can get us in. I got to have Jesus make me my fake ID to get past the bouncer, okay? That's what I have to do to get into this club. And so that's what we experience through Jesus. We can experience and participate in a loving relationship with God, something that is too great really to imagine. And let's go back to this quote one more time. I'm going to read it again and make one more distinction uh, as we begin to wrap it up here this morning. So the quote is again, the gospel does not rest simply on the fact that God loves us, but that on the fact that he loves us with the very same love which he is in, in his triune being. What we see here, if you want to express that in a different way, God is loving us as he loves himself. So when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what God does to all of us. He loves us with this divine love. He loves us in the same way. Now, I'll say this and it may come off bad, but I'm the same way. God loves him some God, right? If he fully, completely, and perfectly expresses love within himself, he doesn't, God does not need your love. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need a relationship with you, right? He doesn't need that at all, which makes this divine love so much more special. It's not that he needs it, it's that he desires it. Not because he's lack, oh, man, you know what I need? 
I need the love from my creation that will fail me over and over again. That's what I need. You know, I have everything I need except for betrayal from billions of my creations. That's what I'm missing. No, that's crazy. God doesn't, he's complete in himself. His love is complete in himself. He doesn't let us enter in because he's missing something. Oh, there's one thing. No, no. It's, he, wants, he wants to extend his goodness to us. He wants us to enter in because he knows it's good for his creation to enter in. He wants them to experience something that is just the greatest thing that they'll ever experience in their lives. He wants us to have that kind of love and experience. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, it's what God does all the time when he extends this divine love to us. A couple of scriptures as we kind of wrap it up today is in John 15. Now, I've talked about John a lot. John is kind of the lovey-dovey guy. If you read the Gospel of John and John's letters, you're going to find love hundreds of times. The word love, if you look it up, John's going to be like pages and pages of Scripture. That's what he's known for. He even talked about himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's the lovey-dovey guy. He was kind of the young one, so he has sort of this romanticized idea about what happened, and everything was great and wonderful, and, you know, that's just who John is. So John has this conversation, or Jesus has a conversation that John writes down, John 15, verse 9. Jesus says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Again, that's that relationship. He's opening up that circle, that exclusive club. We have an invite. So he says, remain in my love. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say this, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. Jesus says, love people the way that God loves you, in a way they don't deserve, in a way they didn't earn, in a way that will blow their mind. Love people that way. This kind of love is different. This kind of love is special. This kind of love is impacts people it changes people when we can truly love others the way that god loves us in this divine way it makes a difference and so when we realize how much god in christ loves us it deepens our love for other people we love differently we forgive deeply we show grace extravagantly so as we close i'm going to dare you to do something this week this holiday week. I'm going to give you a dare. Triple dog dare you. No take backs, all right? Triple dog. I dare you to love others the way that God loves you in Christ. I dare you. And I want you to watch and see their reaction when you express that love in that way to them. I want you to see how it may confuse them. It may take them off guard. It may just melt them into a puddle. It may make them angry, right? There's going to be some effect. When we can love others in the same way that God loves us, in a way that's bigger than us, more powerful than us, that has an impact more than we could make, it will blow people away. It can maybe heal families. It can maybe unite neighborhoods. It can, has the power to change everything. I think if we began to do that more often, more of us did that more often around this town, around this city, around this nation, I think we could see some things improve without doing anything, without a dime from the government, without another program, without another anything in place, if we just chose to love people like God loved us, it would have an effect. So the greatest, the greatest gift that you can receive this Christmas is this divine love. It's, it's like a gift even Santa Claus can't come through on, okay? He's, he can't make that happen. 
Like even you and your own best, you can't find it. You, it's not under a rock for you to find. It's divine. It's out of reach. It's inaccessible. Yet you can receive it, and we have, hopefully most of us in the room, through this relationship with Jesus. We've entered into divine love. And then the greatest gift that you can give to someone is that same divine love. Not that you're divine, but that Christ through you is expressing love that you on your own cannot express. On your own, don't want to express. On your own, it will fall short and flat and be terrible. Okay? It's a divine type of love that we can receive and that when we can give to others that can change not only this holiday season, but can change everything about everyone, including ourselves, for our lives yet to come.